1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, author Joanna Scotts discusses her new book, The Extra Woman, How Marjorie Hillis Led a Generation of Women to Live Alone and Like It. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed recaps the National Book Awards.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan.
1: Well, we've got a new number one in hardcover fiction. It's by Lee Child. and uh, It's Midnight Line, a Jack Reacher novel. This is the 22nd book in the series. We gave it a star, which is a pretty mm. impressive thing for a book that's that far along in a, in a series. But uh, Child is a household name for a reason. We say this is a superlative book. Uh, Jack Reacher is riding a bus in Wisconsin to the next end of the line place and he gets off at a rest stop on the sad side of a small town. So Child's already got that, that atmosphere going on and he uh, is surprised to find a West Point ring in a pawn shop and mm. hunts down the story of the person who left it there. We say that, uh, as usual, Child makes his narrative entirely credible and compulsively readable. Uh, Moving down the list a little bit, at number five, The Noel Diary by Richard Paul Evans. That's Noel as in Christmas. Continuing to see a lot of Christmas-themed books popping up. And uh, this is the the latest holiday-themed novel from Richard Paul Evans, who's the author of The Mistletoe Promise. Uh, This is a feel-good Christmas story for people who like feel-good Christmas stories. We don't have a review of it, but it's definitely one of those where if you're just looking for something heartwarming and cozy, it's right there for you. Uh, Just below it on the list, at number six, is Typhoon Fury by Clive Cussler, writing with Boyd Morrison. Uh, This is a novel of the Oregon Files, the 12th book in the Oregon Files series. And uh, we say this fast-paced novel opens in the midst of the Second Battle of Corregidor in 1945. And uh, during a, a U.S. attack on one of the mountainous islands, many caves, an American searching for a secret Japanese laboratory observes uh, something unusual about the enemy soldiers. Uh, We say that expertly drawn characters and a well-constructed plot make this one of Kussler's better efforts. Uh, Just below that... At number seven, Every Breath You Take by Mary Higgins Clark and Aleph Fairbrook. Latest book in their Under Suspicion series. Again, we don't have a review of this one, but uh, the publisher's material says that it follows a television producer's investigation of an unsolved murder in which a wealthy widow was pushed to her death from the Metropolitan Museum in New York. So uh, no surprise that Clark is going to do well with uh, the latest mystery. And just below that, at number eight, In This Moment by Karen Kingsbury, we say that fans of Kingsbury's Baxter Family Collection will no doubt dive into this syrupy novel focusing on Luke Baxter, a lawyer who's specializing in religious freedom cases. Uh, And This one focuses on one particular court case. Our review says that Kingsbury provides ample context, explaining many recent cases concerning religious freedoms, but the legal proceedings often get lost in the froth of overwrought emotions that are typical of Kingsbury's love-conquers-all outlook. So this is definitely one for the series fans. And finally, at number 12, I need to note, The House of Unexpected Sisters by Alexander McCall Smith, the 18th book in the number one Ladies' Detective Agency series, which continues to be a bestseller, be a big deal. And uh, we say that the case of a woman who was fired unjustly from her job at an office supply company preoccupies Precious Ramotswe and her ambitious assistant, Grace Makutsi, who now styles herself principal investigating officer. Mm. Uh, We see that Precious, who's so good at helping others in need, suddenly has serious personal problems of her own. And on the way to the surprising resolution, Smith delivers some important lessons about human frailty and the value of charity.
0: That's the fiction list. Well, we also have a new number one on nonfiction. This is Obama, an intimate portrait by Pete Souza. Pete Souza was the White House photographer. And here, we don't have a review of it, but he offers uh, some behind the scene images and stories, uh, which are published here in this book for the first time. At number two, we have a self-help book, Inventing Joy, Dare to Build a Brave and Creative Life by Joy Mangano with Alex uh, Tresniowski, we say in this light and enjoyable book, Mangano, a home goods entrepreneur familiar to millions from her appearances on the Home Shopping Network and from being the subject of the biopic Joy, serves up autobiography and business advice. We say that ending with an eclectic collection of inspirational quotes and an invitation to contact her about inventions, Mangano will leave would-be entrepreneurs feeling encouraged as well as entertained. At number four, we have a – it's called The Medical Medium Thyroid Healing, The Truth Behind Hashimoto's, Grays, Insomnia, Hypothyroidism, Thyroid Nodules, and Epstein-Barr by Anthony William. Uh, And this is a uh, medical self-help book. We don't have a review of that. Um, We also have at number 12 – Hacks the Inside Story of the Break-Ins and Breakdowns that Put Donald Trump in the White House by Donna Brazil. And we don't have a review of that either, uh, but the subtitle is self-explanatory. And then we have at number 15, What Unites Us, Reflections on Patriotism, Dan Rather and Elliot Kirshner. Newsman Rather partners with Kirshner, who's the senior producer of Rather's show, Dan Rather reports, to explore the core components of patriotism during the current ...period of political tumult, offering essays titled Inclusion, the Arts, and the Environment, along with the vote, the press, and the service. Um, we say that Rather has issued a stirring call for overcoming today's strident partisanship. Uh, and... Going down to number 22, Playing with Fire, the 1968 election and the transformation of American politics by Lawrence O'Donnell. O'Donnell's the host of MSNBC's The Last Word. And here he turns to print with an in depth examination of the tumultuous 1968 election. He's supporting his work with credible sources. We say that O'Donnell further speculates that had McCarthy not run and Johnson stood for a second term, regardless of who won the 1968 election, RFK would have been elected President in nineteen seventy two. Instead, there was Nixon in Watergate. And I believe no, we have one more. Uh this is Alec Baldwin's book, You Can't Spell America Without Me. The really tremendous inside story of my fantastic first year as President Donald J. Trump, of course, his role on Saturday Night Live. And that's what we have.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Joanna Scuts tells us how a 1936 bestseller redefined singlehood for women. We'll be right back.
2: Hi, I'm Ted Genoways, author of This Blessed Earth, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Joanna Scuts in the office with us. Her new book is The Extra Woman, How Marjorie Hillis Led a Generation of Women to Live Alone and Like It. Hey, Joanna, how are you?
3: I'm well, thanks. Thank you (laughs) so so much for joining us. Thank you.
0: So the subject of your book is Marjorie Hillis, whose 1936 bestseller, uh, Live Alone and Like It, defined a lifestyle and a brief cultural phenomenon. So who is this Marjorie Hillis?
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. She's... um well she, when she wrote this book um she was in her late forties and she had been a vogue editor in new york uh for about twenty five years um She sort of gradually rose up the masthead and she was essentially working as a as a kind of deputy and a, a right hand woman to the editor there who was long serving editor edna Woolman chase um so she was she came out of the magazine world professionally, but personally she was the daughter of a very uh well known Brooklyn preacher um, her father was the head of Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights um, and he had he was appointed there at the beginning right at the beginning of the uh, 20th century and moved there when Marjorie was a young girl moved with his family and sort of became a uh, a sort of pillar of the community he was a very um, active and engaged um, preacher he wrote books that were kind of self help pamphlets in their own way uh, had a great belief in holding up you know great figures from history and as as sort of models for your life so I think marjorie hillis um, who had lived as a single woman had um, lived with her family, and then after her parents passed passed away lived by herself in um, in Manhattan she had sort of absorbed these two strands of um influence and they kind of come together in her book, so she has this sort of morally improving um, religious uh, background. But then she also has many years working in fashion and sort of believing in the power of style and fashion to, to be able to kind of change, uh, change how you feel about yourself. Um, and the book really kind of bring, brings those two strands together. So tell us about her book and what made it a bestseller? I think it's a number of things. I think it's, um, well, it was released in 1936, um, which was a period when there was uh, a very popular um, interest in self-help. Lots of the big self-help bestsellers and blockbusters that we still know the titles of. um, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People came out the same year. You know, and there's this kind of real interest in books that are telling Americans in the sort of still mired in the depression that they can kind of be the ones to change the story for themselves, right? That they can um, kind of overcome their circumstances and uh, and really believe themselves into a sort of positive and a better kind of life. Um, So she's releasing a book into a culture that's very receptive to these kinds of messages, but she's also really uniquely addressing herself to single women and not to single women who are you know, in their early 20s and sort of expecting to marry soon, but sort of want to have fun before they do. And um, she's really talking to women throughout their lives who are living by themselves. Um, she says that her book is uh, no brief in favor of living alone, but that it's a sort of recognizes the The reality for women, which is that they are quite likely to live alone at some point in their lives, that even if they're married, they might not stay married. Um, You know, there are there are futures in which they can uh, they might find themselves alone. And given that reality, they should try to find a way to enjoy it and um, find it fulfilling. So I think that was yeah. So it it was a new kind of message, a new kind of slant on a on a self help uh in, in a sort of self-help hungry culture. Um but she seemed to find an audience. Um, plus the book is just very funny, uh very well written. She's very witty and snappy and kind of was compared to Dorothy Parker and those kinds of, you know, that that kind of um sort of no nonsense um kind of language. So I think she just uh readers really responded to that. Um, you know, it was a message that was delivered in a very appealing package. <laughs>
1: So this is during the Great Depression, um, after World War I, what we now think of as the interwar period, but at the time they were they were still considering it post-war. Mm-hmm. They thought the war had ended all wars. Right. And uh, what, what else was the
3: cultural context that this book sort of came into? Yeah, there's a few things that, especially for women, are really important about that period. Um, the right to vote is extended to women in 1920. And so Marjorie Hillis, Grew up in a kind of in that sort of first wave um, period, and she would have been, you know, very aware of um, and probably an active participant in a lot of the you know the suffrage activism of the teens. Um, what sort of happens in after the after the Nineteenth Amendment is that um, a lot of that very sort of public political activism of women sort of gets redirected, and so it's not as there aren't as many. Uh, sort of obvious causes bringing women together. Um, so I think there's a kind of the 1920s or sort of we don't really and, and certainly the 30s we don't really think of as like feminist waves you know we sort of they're sort of between the the big waves but um, I think one thing that also happens with the depression is that um, a lot of younger women a lot of single women are working um, for the first time and um, they Going out to get office jobs if, if those are available to them, which generally means that they were white and middle class. Um, but certainly working for a living became a reality for a lot more women in that time period. Um, it's also a period of kind of urbanization. People are sort of moving to cities and I think there's also you know this sense that we think of the depression in very you know our images of it come from a sort of the rural or industrial. Um, impact which tended to be an impact that affect you know a heavier impact on men you know the mm. the real job losses in industry and um, you know those are industries that were you know, those heavy industries that were dominated by men but for women it's actually not as uh, you know there's there's actually a sort of opening up of opportunity in some ways um, you know they couldn't really celebrate it or sort of you know consider it uh, you know, it wasn't you had to sort of acknowledge that it was out of, uh, you know, out of necessity for a lot of people. But I do think that there's, you know, finding that kind of independence and finding a way to support yourself um, was a new experience for a lot of women. And there are definitely women who really embraced it. And maybe it made them rethink what they, what their lives were going to be like.
0: So what was the reception of this book? Uh, what kind of criticism did it get? Uh, where was it reviewed? Was it reviewed? And how did how did word ab- about the book spread?
3: Well, it was a couple of – it definitely got reviewed. I mean, it tended to be sort of fairly, fairly brief, kind of this book is fun, you know, you might like it sort of thing. They, she got um, – her later books got a sort of more serious uh, attention because she was well-known by then. But this was a sort of uh, – the initial – reception was you know this is lively this is fun Um, and as it became clear that it was a bestseller and that it was touching a nerve Mm. it you know there was more written about kind of this question of like who you know why are so many people reading this what is Mm. this what is this saying and lots of um, reports about you know men seem to be buying it too and what could they possibly be uh, sort of responding to so it's um it's getting attention from the press but it's also getting really um pushed on purchases in all kinds of different ways the publisher was really creative about the ways that this book got into its readers hands um they did you know this is an era where sort of local department stores and local newspapers are really you know um major forces of uh promotion and the women's page editors of, of, uh, local newspapers across the country were reading the book. Um, Marjorie Hillis toured pretty tirelessly. She was appearing at, but she would appear at sort of department stores and do a fashion show. And then hmm. the book would kind of be part of that. And there's, I found, um, you know, there's some photographs in the, in the book of these window displays that were created, um, Around products that you could buy to kind of uh, get your sort of glamorous live alone lifestyle started, and it was, uh, there was lots of negligees, lots of uh, lots of fluffy robes, and lots of um, you know kind of furniture that was suited to a sort of single woman's apartment. Um, so the department stores, really, which were also obviously struggling under the in the you know amid the economic downturn, they they really embraced the book as kind of this is a whole new market for us we can sell this book and we can sell all the you know the cocktail shaker and the and the and the robe that goes Mm -hmm. along with it so it's a kind of uh yeah and they there's these wonderful um materials and the publisher um kept of kind of how these you know how their salesmen would go on the road and take the book and they had quotes from the book and all of these uh um, the kind of whole program that they took to these department store managers and said, "Like here's a new, you know, here's this whole promotion we've got, like ready for you to go." And and lots of them responded. So it was definitely um, actively pushed, but um, the book had the, you know, it was it had the skill, it had the, the sort of the quality to back it up as well. So when you're talking about
1: negligees and uh, cocktail shakers, was this a, a sense that this, these single women were sexually liberated women? And this was sort of before the, the white picket fence purity of the 1950s came down.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's a chapter in the book which is called the uh, The Pleasures of a Single Bed. Uh, which is actually mostly about breakfast in bed and um, <laughs> like your your nightgowns for all seasons. Um, there's this thing called a bed jacket, which she yes. uh, insists that you have at least four of for different seasons <laughs> and different occasions. Um, but there is also a chapter that deals with um, sort of sex and relationships. I think that one is called "Will Will You or Won't You?" <laughs> um, and certainly, Hillis is of a of an older generation. Like she was certainly writing to women who might be sexually liberated, but possibly were still not talking about it, or it wasn't really um, kind of something that was that had sort of made its way into mainstream culture. She says, really, she says it's up to you. Um, you have to be sure that you're entering into what she calls an affair with your eyes open. She advises that you don't Get involved with anyone seriously until you're thirty, at least. <laughs> she doesn't mm. think there's any, you know, wow. heart heartache is, uh, you know. I, I think, and I, it's it's tough to kind of read between the lines, and it's very tempting to try to extrapolate from that and think about what experiences she might have have had, but um, she's certainly. Her, her major point is that that's, it's now your affair. You know, it's our, your affair literally is your affair. It's, um, it's not, you know, your brother's or your father's business or your community's business. And part of that is because you're, you know, in the vision that she creates at least, you're sort of living in an urban place, you're living alone, you're not being supervised by your community in the same way that you might have been in a previous generation. Um, so she kind of has it both ways. She suggests that it's there, but she's also very aware of saying, you know, I'm not giving you blanket permission to do what you like. You still have to weigh the consequences for yourself kind of emotionally and, um, and you sort of like, it's, it's really your, your choice. But, um, her whole ethos really is about choice and making choices with your eyes open. Um, and the choice to have an affair or not is absolutely just part of that. And
0: remind us how old was she at the time the book was published, and what was her um living situation like her
3: so she was forty seven um when the book came out, and she was living in Tudor City um in manhattan on the on the east side. Uh, she had a one bedroom apartment there, and she had been there for a few years um both of her parents passed away um within a few months of each other um and they and that was right around the time of the Wall Street crash. So she had uh, a couple of pretty dark years around of losing both her parents and then sort of amid this national crisis. But in the wake of that, um, kind of picked herself up and she had gone back to her family's home in the suburbs of the city um, while her parents were sick. And then she... Um, they after they passed away, her sister remarried, her sister had been divorced and then remarried. And she was kind of all alone. And she was in this, uh, she was in the uh, town um, uh, Bronxville up in the, mm-hmm. um, uh, North of Manhattan in this sort of affluent suburb, her brother and his four little girls lived around with his like four little daughters lived around the corner. And she saw this maiden aunt future for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was commuting with all of the men of the neighborhood down to grand central and she realized that was not the future that she wanted. So she picked herself up. She got back to the city. She rented her apartment in Tudor City. And so she lived there, which was just um, working. At the Vogue offices were um, in the Grey Bar building uh, um, right by Grand Central Station. Right. So she was only a few blocks uh, walk right. from work. Um, so she uh, basically had a much more... Um, much more freedom to enjoy the city she loved the theater she loved going out for dinner she was very social and as you sort of you know this was just a much um easier kind of way to create that life that she wanted we're going to take a quick break but don't go away
0: book lovers everywhere love publishers weekly radio now on iheartradio.com pw radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Joanna Scott's author of The Extra Woman. Where did these extra women came from? I mean, that phrase is fascinating. What's the origin of that?
3: You know, the specific origin of it is um, not something I was able to fully identify, like sort of clearly, but it was clearly a common enough phrase that she sort of throws it into her the title of her book. And then her book is about kind of moving from that idea to this idea of the live alona, which is her word for the single women she's writing to. Um, and I, I read it as kind of getting rid of the idea of, um, you know, being defined by what you don't have or sort of your your surplus to requirements in society in some way to focusing on what you're doing, what you're actively choosing to do, which is to live alone. Um, but certainly, I mean, she's growing up, um, she's growing up, well, she's a young adult in the wake of world war one. And there's definitely a sense that, uh, in the United States, but also in Europe, that a generation of men has been lost um, in the trenches. And um, although the demographic uh, kind of reality of that is actually not, um, it, it sort of gets uh, made up fairly quickly. It's uh, It doesn't have a sort of lasting impact. Uh, most of the women who were um, engaged or had lost um, husbands or fiancés in the war tended to remarry. It, it sort of Hmm. corrected itself. Um, but but it left a sense of loss that was really palpable, even if it wasn't um, kind of, even if the data didn't quite match it up, it still felt very um, powerfully as though uh, women had lost a, an opportunity to marry. Um, and there was also the sense that they had lost kind of the best men. So, which I think probably was not <laughs> uh, nice for the surviving men to it, no. thinking, oh, right. but this idea that you know they were sort of the second choice, you know, that they had lost their first love in the trenches, and then they get the sort of the guy who's uh, which again is that I'm sure reality didn't um, was not that simple, but there was still that kind of cultural sense about loss. And I so I think the state this idea of being extra I mean, women who don't marry have you know have always had a sort of a, a troubling place in a society that that kind of wants people to go two by two and be very, um, uh, sort of contained in, in neat units. Um, but I think in, in the period of, of her youth and, and after the war, that extraness started to feel more pitiable. You know, you sort of had this, the idea that you were not only alone, but also kind of, you know, grieving a loss, even, even though that might not have been your actual situation. Uh, so she was really interested in trying to take that Sort of you know, forlorn spinster idea and turn it into this much more active um, and positive woman so
0: she went on to write other books uh, after this what What were those books, and did they have the same impact
3: yes she um she capitalized pretty quickly on um, on this suce- on the success of live alone um, she left Vogue. Uh, a few months after the book came out, and um it was making so much in royalties that she didn't need to continue the job and she wanted to focus full time on writing but she uh one of the big um critiques of the book had been that you know this is all very well if you're a you know wealthy magazine editor and it's this very glamorous lifestyle that she's promoting and it's um you know it's it's wildly kind of out, aspirational and sort of out of step with reality. So, she um, responded a little bit to that critique, but also this was something that she was interested in. Um, her second book is called Orchids on Your Budget. Um, it's how to live smartly on what have you. So, it's kind of a yes. budgeting book. Um, again, you know, she still kind of, you know, assumed a very high level of of income and and a high level of uh, choice and flexibility in how you how you are spending your money um and does make it clear that she's writing to people who can who can choose as she puts it um i think she says how to you know they can choose whether or not to butter their bread but she's not writing for the people who have to go without the bread right she's she mm-hmm. understands that there's a there's a line um mm. and and there's a and she she doesn't have a lot to say to the people who are really uh, really really destitute, but she's um she's sort of speaking to a class that has seen its status change, has seen its circumstances change, and she's trying to um trying to help them. And so that was her that was her immediate follow-up and also did very well. Um she wrote with a Vogue colleague, she put together a um a sort of a cookbook and entertaining guide, um, which is called Corn Beef and Caviar for the Liver She had quite a knack for these titles. Um, and that one is uh, that one is a bit more of a straightforward sort of um, uh, cookbook. Uh, it's got lots of menus, um, but it's very much about you know what are you? What's the occasion? Are you trying to? Are you trying to get a man? And so you know this is the menu for Mister Wright. This is the menu for uh, you know the obligation person you have to invite. You don't really want him to stay. <laughs> <Here's>, <laughs> you know she's got a very very frank um, kind of series. She divides men into these categories, and most of them are pretty awful and um, but she uh so that was her sort of and that that seemed like it had been a, a kind of a fun thing that she was doing with um, her friend and then uh she sort of took a change of pace after that uh, she writes these all very quickly and then um in the late 1930 in like 1939 uh she wrote um a book of poetry um she'd always written um, sort of light verse and and poetry for um you she'd written that sort of when she was younger and this book is really interesting and it was a total failure um as far as certainly compared to her previous books. Um but she wrote a book about seven women in New York and what their lives were like and sort of imagining like a kind of day in the life of this group of friends, um, all of whom um are sort of professional working women, um, most of whom are single and sort of imagining the different um places they live the different kind of um circumstances that they have and um and i think it's a much more um it's more sort of nuanced and and negative of a kind of it's more nuanced and and often darker picture of what it means to be that kind of single woman several of the women are sort of very lonely Mm -hmm. and unfulfilled um although the married one is also really unhappy so it's kind of <laughs> she's probably the most unhappy um but the but yeah there's sort of sense that there is there's definitely sort of shades of shades of grey and shades of sort of emotional depth in there that she wasn't able to access in the in the self-help books um so that's her kind of quick um she wrote a, then she also wrote a book about New York um to tie into the 1939 World's Fair right uh, for w- women visiting the city so it was a a very intense period of creativity. Um, and then in 1939, she got married. And that was a huge shock uh, to her readers and a huge shock I'm to sure. uh, the newspapers who had a field day with, uh, oh my goodness, she's not uh, happy alone after all. She doesn't really, there's a, you know, she doesn't like it um, as much as she said. And she, um, uh, she kind of, uh, she married a man who was older than she was. And she was, um, almost 50 when she got married. Um, he had uh, children and grandchildren and she so she sort of became part of their lives And um, but she pretty much stopped writing um, mm-hmm. during her 10 years of marriage and then in what I think is the most sort of you know, radical and interesting thing about her is that in the um, early 50s after she's widowed she comes back with a new book that's speaking to women who are widowed and divorced and getting older alone and sort of reiterating this message that you can have pleasure and happiness and, Mm. you know, remain independent and fulfilled, you know, throughout your life. It's not just something for for young women.
1: You write about a lot of the other women writing at the same period for sort of the same audience, Um, Irma Rombauer writing The Joy of Cooking, uh, and, uh, also one of the women you mentioned is, uh, Martha Fishback, who was a female mm. advertising copywriter. So how did all these women sort of come together to, to create this cultural moment?
3: Yeah, I think there's definitely a, uh, an openness to the kind of the professional working woman in the late thirties. And, and Fishback is a, um, was a very popular poet as well as being, mm. um, this high profile advertising executive, um, who also sort of got married and it was a kind of a big scandal that she got married because she'd written all these poems about being a being a glamorous single woman and i think you know there's a lot of if you think about the um uh the sort of the icons of of cinema at that time and you think about the sort of heroines of screwball comedies um uh, um films like his girl friday and these these sort of um images that are being Projected of, of kind of very competent, very stylish, very um, sort of self-reliant women, you know, the sort of Rosalind Russell type. Um, that that's your sort of cultural heroine at the at the time. I think it really is a moment that's interested in these, um, you know, these independent-minded women who might be in relationships or might have a romantic uh plot in their mm-hmm. their film or their life, but that's not what defines them. You know, they're they're not pursuing men um as a as a way of you know creating a an identity for themselves. Um in fact, in Marjorie Hillis uh would talk about sort of who she considered a, the exemplary live aloner and one of the people she comes up with is Eleanor Roosevelt. Mm. Uh right, so she's got this um a woman who's um, obviously not single, but whose life is so sort of full and rich, and um, you know, active and you know, interesting and important, that this woman, you know, she, she is also a kind of um, you know an icon of the of that era. So I think it's a really interesting um, kind of shaded nuance to the idea of the live alona that that Eleanor Rose- can encompass Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's really about. Uh, a woman who 's independent and engaged in her community busy um, you know sort of just has doesn 't have the time to sit around and feel sorry for herself right she 's not a she 's not a lonely um, she 's not lonely or reclusive she's she 's kind of got a, a full social calendar and um so I think there 's something about that really seemed to um, seem to touch a nerve and um, I write later in the book about Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, mm-hmm. um, which comes out in 1963. But a lot of the early part of that book is a kind of retrospective of sort of what happened. You know, how do we get so far away from that, you know, busy, independent Rosalind Russell kind of icon to, you know, how do we get from there to sort of the Marilyn Monroe um, sort of very um, a sort of sexualized and sort of youthful and very... Um, unthreatening kind of, uh, um, woman who's not, uh, who sort of exists in her own world. She doesn't, you know, challenge the men in any way. She certainly doesn't try to go into their workplace and be a part of the professional world. Um, and a lot of what she does, uh, Fredan does is trace, um, magazine stories. She looks at journalism, um, and she kind of reads these, you know, fictional, um, uh, pictures of women and just charts how completely different they are in the late 1930s to the early 1950s um it's you know it's like instead of being stories about work and stories about that you know dreams and success and Mm -hmm. they become stories about you know 19 year old girls feeling like they've missed their chance at marriage because they haven't found a man yet and it's uh it's a really to her a really shocking change in culture
0: so how did you come to discover marjorie hillis
3: it was a it was an accident. Um it was a gift, literally. I got a copy of this book from a friend of mine several years ago now. And um I'm obviously not originally from the United States. I um I am from London and I was at home in London, um and the copy of the book that I got was from a friend there and it was an original she'd found a um she'd read about it somewhere and she'd found a an original, like a 1936 edition of the the book. And I was reading it and it's talking about um, London Bridge. It's talking about uh, Regent's Park. It's talking about all of these um, landmarks in London. So I simply assumed that she was a British writer and I I couldn't find anything much out about her. And I gradually kind of was able to piece together some of the traces of it. And I realized that what happened when, when uh, live alone and like it was such a success here she um they produced a translation essentially <laughs> of the book um, really so it goes so she went to London and she oversaw the the British publisher kind of translating it and they and really it's kind of you can read them against each other, and she takes the you know a, a landmark, um, instead of talking about the lights on Broadway, she talks about the lights on the West End. And it's a very kind of, um, you know, just taking these cultural references out and shifting How them funny. around. It's a really funny, um, idea that the, that the publishers didn't think that they could, I guess, sell the story right. if, it, if that sounded too American. And so she kind of re, uh, reworks it. Um, and she does that for, uh, a couple of her books. Um, but the later ones don't. Uh, don't go over. So it's really just the first one. But yeah, that was a a sort of a distracting sort of a, uh, sent me off in a research um, kind of misdirection at the beginning, but it really just snowballed from there. I just wanted to know, I wanted to read about her. I wanted to hear more of her story and there just wasn't anything out there. So I had to write it. (laughs) We've been talking
1: with Joanna Scutz. You can find her book, The Extra Woman in stores right now. Joanna, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly
2: Radio.
0: Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed talks about the National Book Awards. Stay tuned.
2: I'm John McGregor, author of Reservoir 13, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about the National Book Awards. Hi, Calvin.
2: How you doing?
1: Doing well. Thank you for coming on the show. So it was quite an exciting night.
2: Well, it's always exciting uh, to get a chance to go to the, the National Book Awards. I mean, uh, they are the premier uh, American recognition of the best, you know, of the book publishing industry. So, I always considered myself pretty lucky to get to go. And I've gone for a pretty long string of years, too. Yeah,
0: I we had gone to many, many. I didn't mm-hmm. go to to uh, this year's but this was uh lisa lucas's second uh yeah. uh national book awards uh, tell us tell us the the feeling that that was there
2: uh well, it was a really good feeling and i mean look i, I think it's always exciting to talk about uh lisa I, and i mean that because i i mean you there you just get this feeling from her that this is a new era for the nba uh in a lot of ways and i think you i think you felt a little bit of that uh last night um uh it, just in the sense that i mean on a just a sort of an infrastructure level i mean she and uh, david steinberg are the the um the director of the national um book foundation they talked about having a, a bunch of new first time sponsors um there were certainly far more tables uh than there have been in the past hmm. um uh, there was more media coverage there with the the bleachers if <laughs> you 've been to the <laughs> to the national books since it's moved to uh um uh cipriani 's you know we the 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 media situation is this this bleacher section that sort of hmm. that 's what I call it um it 's set to one end, it's set to one end of it and they 've added you know rows of tables to it the actual dining tables for the attending publishers and authors it, it really it virtually takes up the entire floor now and they've completely they've added a, a sort of heated temporary red carpet area outside of the building you know because really? in a grand uh old wall street building that was converted into you know a posh restaurant mm-hmm. um so yeah so the uh, the stars arrive outside in the heated you know plexiglass or you know pl- you know plastic yeah. enclosure uh, where you check in, and there's video cameras, and that's the where you. So that's new. That that actually started last year. You know, so this is mm-hmm. the second year here. So there's lots of things that are changing, but I, I, I do think going forward, I mean, there's a sense that that Lisa is going to make NBA more of a recognizable American event phenomenon, separate from you know basketball. Yeah. Have, <laughs> right. Even though they do have now a very funny yep. you know a basketball benefit thing called the Other NBA. <laughs> Um so in that regard, I think uh, Lisa Lucas is doing what she was uh was brought in to do to be the face of, of the program, an ambassador for reading. Um uh she's already kind of, you know, pumped up the volume, I think, on a lot of the things uh that the National Book Foundation does. And uh and and, and as they reminded us last night, and there's only seven people and they're a national program, so there's lots of stuff to do. Mm-hmm. So there's more to come. Mm.
1: And our Article about it said that politics was front and center.
2: Well, I, I think how could it not be? I mean, but what I found interesting in the in the long list and the finalists of the books, I mean, many of the books looked as though they were like ripped from the headlines. Mm. I mean, um, including, I, I think, you know, the winner of the uh, um, the nonfiction award who commented as much from. Uh, you know, from the podium, um, Amasha um, Gesson's uh book, um, The Future's History How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, uh, when she was announced as uh, as the winner, um, uh, Gesson said, I think, um, you know, I didn't bring any notes, because um, I never expected to win. You know, I was rooting for someone else. He says, you know, who would have thought a book on Russia uh, would win? But he said, but she said, times have changed. Um, and
1: that, that was pretty much what she had said. We interviewed her on the radio yeah, a, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and she had said much the same thing, that uh, she never expected a book like hers yeah. to get anywhere close to the NBAs, but times have changed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things um, we did last night, me and uh, our colleague John Mayer, we actually were lucky to get four interviews with nominees that we did Facebook Live interviews with. We didn't get any of the winners, but once again one of the nominees was uh Nancy McLean's book on uh democracy and chains. Really a look uh, uh, at the history of the radical right, uh how people like uh, the Koch brothers where their ideology come from came from. Uh it, it just seemed once again a book that could have been forged right out of, you know, a headline from the Washington Post or the New York Times. Yeah. So the politics was certainly on people's minds. Bill Clinton, obviously, uh, handed out the Literarian Award. He's married to, I think, a recent presidential uh, candidate. That's what I heard. Um, And, uh, of course, he got a phenomenal ovation. So, yes, politics was a part of the evening, but, you know, it was accompanied by a a love of books and literature. I mean, that's what, uh, at the end of the day, is what uh, makes being at the National Book Awards feel so special. If you love books, you love book culture— uh, and if you like hanging around with book people, what, what, what more could you ask yeah. for? So there was much love of books, including by the, uh, MC, Cynthia Nixon, the, uh, uh, the actress. Her grandfather was a rare book dealer. Hmm. So, uh, she talked a little bit about it uh, literally growing up in the book stacks. So, um, yeah, politics was there, but, you know, accompanied by, um, the love of books, and uh, you know, just and I, 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 always an encouraging feeling of uh, celebrities talking about loving being around book people.
0: So, this was so for fiction, this was Jasmine Ward's yes. second National Book Award. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's it, and
2: the last one was I think four years ago. I mean, tell yeah. talk about that. I, I mean, I'm not sure it's unusual for there to be multiple uh, NBA winners. But uh, she certainly gave a very moving speech. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read the novel, but um, she described it a bit from the podium. And and she talked a little bit about – it's interesting to hear an uh, an author who has had quite a bit of success and is a former NBA winner. But Mm -hmm. she is talking about how she's adjusting to this notion that of being acclaimed. Her books were rejected for so many years by uh, publishers. Uh, She attributed it to the kind of characters in them, black, poor – um uh, uh struggling in life. Uh but um you know what? Uh the world's changed uh <laughs> very clearly. Uh certainly the judges um uh embrace her and her writing and uh she certainly got a warm uh warm welcome when she was uh when it was announced. And uh I thought it was very interesting uh Jacqueline Woodson, uh an NBA right. winner herself for yeah. Young People's Literature <clears throat> She was the presenter uh, for the Fiction Award. And uh, and I think we should it, – it, it I think it's important to note this because, I mean, this is certainly an issue. The diversity of this business that we're in, that we love, uh, is always being – you know, is always a little dubious. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, y- you don't see a lot of diversity in the book publishing industry, at least not uh, as far as race is concerned. Uh, and yet Jacqueline – and she was right. Uh, Jacqueline did announce uh, from uh, the podium – That this was the most beautiful and diverse crowd she'd seen, ever seen in her trips to the National Book Awards. Mm -hmm. And with that, you know, she announced that the winner uh, of the fiction prize was Jasmine Ward.
1: But that sounds like a beautiful evening, a beautiful event. And uh, for those who have missed the other announcements, will you just recap the other winners?
2: Sure. Yeah. So so I mentioned the fiction. Uh, we mentioned nonfiction. Um, let's see. The Young People's uh, Literature Award was Robin Benway for A Far From the Tree from Harper, uh, from Harper Teen. Uh, let's see. The uh, the Poetry Award um, uh, for the Natural Book Award went to Frank Bidart's Half Light. Collected poems in nineteen sixty five to twenty sixteen, and, and Bidart was was uh, visibly moved uh, to have won, and uh, and he talked about how um, everybody, you know, everybody out here was like half my age, so I, you know, I need to write poems to to get through this. So, um, yeah, did I? I think I need them all. I yeah, I think yeah. that's all. Yeah. All four of them, and I and I have to mention that um, the after party, the dance party afterwards, is turned into <laughs> it's turned into a thing and uh i can't tell you how much fun it is not only to, to, to like dance after the national book awards but watch uh you know you know these very very um august and distinguished <laughs> figures uh in literature you know Jamming at the uh, in front of a DJ um, after the awards are over, so it's it's a different show and it's a lot of fun. And many years ago, that didn't happen. Everybody just <laughs> scattered to the winds after the last award out. So it's pretty fun to see the 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 house party that breaks out after all the awards are handed out.
1: Well, thank you, Calvin. I feel like I got to be there.
2: Okay. Right. We'll have to get you there one day. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And on the dance floor. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know it. Right, there you go. All right.
1: So thank you, Calvin. It's always great to have you on the show. You bet. And now a final word from our sponsors.
0: Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: We're on vacation next week for Thanksgiving, but you can still tune in to hear two of our favorite interviews from the archives. When we get back, we'll have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash radio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.